1 Peter chapter 4, we are moving into what I'm going to handle as a separate section uh, for the next, for not only this week, the next three weeks. It'll take us uh, through most of the coming month as we work through these areas that are prefaced by a very forthright and simple statement that we need to maybe address, and we're going to address it each week because this is the introductory statement to really help us uh, be directed in the activities that are going to be described in the next few verses. And that phrase in verse 7 is, but the end of all things is at hand. And so each week we're going to talk about a little, a little bit of that, of the end of all things is at hand, and investigate how close are we. Now remember, obviously Peter wrote this some time ago. And uh, in his understanding of the theology of the kingdom was that this age, this church age, would be the concluding age of opportunity for man to come to know Christ as Savior. And, that is, and hence, for all the church age, we live in the end times. That is the last age age of opportunity. The day of salvation is what is described of as in several places, that this is the day uh, for that decision making, that the age of the millennial kingdom is the age of rest, that that is a rest for creation, for the, uh, the earth itself, for, the, for all of the created order, not only for mankind and the nations to be under the direct rule of Jesus Christ, but for the earth to just be able to rest. And we see this as a principle that is consistent in God's word, uh, even for Israel, that you're going to give the land a rest every now and then, that God cares about creation, uh, that you're going to give your animals a rest here, we're going to care for them. And so when we talk about this concept, it's it's not surprising to find that God says, I'm going to bring the earth, I'm going to relieve it from its curse, from the weight of man's sin under the direct supervision of Jesus Christ. So that age is our age of rest. So when we talk about this is the at-hand period, that the Lord's coming, the, the end of all things is at hand, uh, we, we understand that for the disciples, they knew because Jesus taught that very clearly to them, especially that last Passion Week where we found the uh, various discourses, the Olivet Discourse, for example, Matthew 24, uh, again in Mark, Luke, John, we have other aspects, uh, other uh, passages relating that information uh, where the disciples want to know, when is the end of all things? And Jesus Christ says, well, when this, 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 this happens, uh, the end is not yet, and not all those things had happened when Peter wrote this, but he saw them certainly on the near horizon. And he says, when you see these things happen, realize that, that these are the beginning of sorrows because this is the age of sorrows. This is the period in which we have um, tribulation and that this is the last period. This is our final opportunity, really, to respond to Jesus Christ is this period, this time. And so when we find that the end of all things is at hand for Peter's readers, it was not necessarily that they should be anticipating Christ's return soon because Peter knew he was still alive. He's certainly going to talk about what the end is going to entail that it's going to later on in his writing. He's going to talk about that everything's going to melt with fervent heat. He knew how it was going to end. Uh, he knew that this was really the last period where we could engage in the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the presentation of the offer of salvation with genuineness and with, with people having a real opportunity to respond. This is really it. This age. Now, for us, um, these 1,990 years or so from this time, uh, we're looking at it and say, well, if the end was near then, how near is it now? Well, we know it's near, don't we? We have every reason to anticipate that this generation will certainly not pass 
from the earth without the Lord's return. Things that we have fancifully and uh, dealt with and manipulated over my lifetime now are not only anticipated, but we are seeing them well in, in, along the law, line of being implemented. And so, uh, and of course, one of the ones we're going to talk about right away this morning is in the focus on the church for most all of my life at least, and in terms of, of prophetic writing, has been taken up a lot more space probably than it should have in all of our books on prophecy, is the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. And we look at that, and there's been so much emphatic work on that that we see it inundating our culture. And so Hollywood, all, every, I mean, you see it all over the place that you put three sixes together and we all immediately have this identification. And that's all derived from biblical prophecy and it has pervaded society on many, many levels. And what we seldom understand maybe is what is involved in that, but historically. Historically, we have, we have speculated what was it involved in and now we look at that and we say, well, um, you cannot participate in the economy. You cannot buy or sell without this mark. And we say, well, that's not hard. It's not hard to implement in our day. In fact, it has been implemented. It is being implemented. And we are accustomed to it even at this point. We are accustomed that without some numerical factors that we are not going to, that we cannot buy and sell. And so, uh, whether we acknowledge it or not, when we go through and our, all of our goods are scanned and that nobody's punching in numbers at the store that you go to, you know that those are numerical things. They're scanning numbers. And so to associate numbers with the economy in terms of participation uh, is something that we have really grown accustomed to. Now we are moving that number from the product to the person. And this is what we have been anticipating, is moving that from the product to the person. And God's word declares that it is what is going to be shouted out and declared uh, as the main uh, force, the drive, the impetus between, behind all of this are going to be two concepts. One is peace and one is safety. That if you want peace and safety, that you will have to participate in this process. And if you do not, the penalty is that you can't buy or sell. You can't participate in the economy. So you take away our peace safety, we're taking away your livelihood, your opportunity to buy and sell, your participation in what we understand to be the economy. And so do we see that here? Well, we see it well in place. We don't have to speculate very much, do we? We don't have to go uh, and dream up things because it's all around us and we can sit, and, and really the problem now is not identifying what kind of thing it will be, but more of which one of these it could be. And while some in our last couple of years have said, oh, this, the, the vaccines are the mark, and, and I said, well, it can't be because it, yet. Um, because you're still buying and selling without it. But are you going to be able to do that very long? And so we see that there's going to be this association, and, and we see it on the very near horizon, not years away, not decades away, months away. The end of all things is at hand. And so what manner of living should we have? And we can see these things, and they are easily uh, connected. And we're going to talk about the position of the church next week and the end of all things at hand, um, because the Bible has some very clear statements about where religion is going to be placed, not just Christianity and true religion, uh, a right relation with God, but all religions and how they will be uh, destroyed, essentially uh, maligned, um, by this uh, new world order, we'll call it that. And so we're going to look at that next week, but we see these things, and so what should be our response? 
Well, this is what Peter's concern is about. He's going to talk in other portions of his writings about the end of the age. Uh, This is really his introduction to this uh, concept and its association with suffering. Remember, we're still in that mega theme of suffering. Well, what will suffering do at the end of the age? Will it increase or decrease? Well, obviously, it's going to increase. Jesus Christ warns us of that. Uh, Peter heard that warning. He warns his readers. And so the question people ask me is, well, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Peter answers that question for us. (laughs) We don't have to uh, wring our hands and try to figure things out because the Bible not only tells us what will be, but how we should respond. And so every Christian knows, well, I'm not going to participate in some activity that is a requirement for me to participate in the economy that has a numerical base. And so if I have to do this, but we've already essentially, of bringing this upon my person, we know, well, I'm not going to take the mark of the beast. And, well, that's okay, good. The Bible tells you to do that, (laughs) to not do that. That Bible gives you that directive. But what we have is, while we, we have a sense of what to do there, and God's Word declares that, we miss some of the large themes, the larger parts of what we should be doing in response to drawing near to the end of the age. And all four of these we're going to be looking at in this passage are categorical, they are, but they are specific categories. And they are vitally important, as we're going to see, uh, and and uh, in their in enabling the church, the true believer, to not only stand but to have a testimony among those who are facing the last opportunities they have to hear the gospel and respond. They will hear the gospel during the seven years of God's wrath. Even an angel will come and preach it to them all, but there will be no response of repentance. A belief is very clear in Scripture. And if that bothers you, why preach if you don't expect a response? Um, you need to understand God's economy of salvation a little bit better. Why did Noah preach for 100 years when it was very evident that no one was going to respond? Why did it, was Ezekiel told at the beginning of his ministry, you're going to go to a people that aren't going to listen to you? There's a recruiting tool. So so I'm going to give you a forehead of flint, he tells Ezekiel. I'm going to give you a rock-hard forehead so you can just keep banging your head against a wall. Because from a human perspective, preaching to people that you know won't respond seems like a useless endeavor. It's just hitting your head against a wall. So God says, I'll give you a forehead of flint so you can just keep doing it and not give up. So there are other reasons for the preaching of the gospel, but it's understanding that the, uh, so they will hear the gospel after Christ's return during the, during the seven years of God's wrath, and even into the millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ will be here, but the opportunity to respond will be ended. And thus we are coming into months, literally months, y- years maybe, of opportunity. And this age closes. What should we be engaged in? Not only in terms of, of how do I endure and, and, and stand, how do I help my brethren endure and stand, and then how do we be this shining light to a dark world that won't even look at the light, that's going to turn its face away, and we know they're going to do that because God's word says so. Their hearts will go cold. To the message. And we've already seen that in a large degree. And so we come to these, these areas, and these are the, the absolute necessary elements that are going to help us endure to the end. And that is our concern. If the end is near, how do I endure to that? That's Peter's concern. And we're going to uh, look into this. And so Today, we're, we talked a little bit about the mark of the beast. We're going to be, the next three weeks at least, if not four, we're going to look at some other reasons why we know that the end is, of all things, is at hand. That it is uh, not just in a distance thing, that, but it, we, we anticipate it. 
And hopefully that doesn't frighten you. Hopefully that gets your attention a little bit. It should excite you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It should cause you to reevaluate your priorities a little bit, I'm sure. Uh, and that's okay. To put you in a little bit of a state of, of concern is part of prophecy's point. Uh, is to bring us to repentance so that we can walk circumspectly uh, with anticipation that I'm going to have to give an accounting very quickly to my Savior for all of my activity of life. So here we go. What four things, and we're going to only look at one today, uh, these four things listed here. Let's go ahead and read the whole passage from 7 through verse 11. And you guys know what words mean, so you can tell what the next four messages are going to be about. It says, Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. And in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be long the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If that doesn't close a section, I'm not sure how much stronger you can close a section. And so we have this encapsulation. What do I do when I'm faced with the imminence of Christ's return? And we have essentially four statements. So we begin. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. We come into a category of the Christian walk that perhaps gets the most lip service and the least activity in our churches. And I say that having grown up in a Christian culture that I went to what we had prayer meeting. I grew up with prayer meeting and the midweek service was prayer meeting. Every Wednesday night was prayer meeting. Uh, and uh, not youth, that was usually on Tuesday night or some other night of the week, but Wednesday night was prayer meeting. And pastors would, whenever they come to the topic of prayer and scripture, would have their obligatory uh, statement saying that why is the prayer meeting the least attended service of the church? And I heard that regularly growing up, um, but my family was always there. And of course, that kind of gives you this one-upmanship, right? That I'm spiritually better. Well, I was a kid, so I just got drugged there whether I wanted to be there or not. But what I want to share with you is what prayer meeting was like back in the day. And why I say we give it lip service because we go into prayer meeting, and, and granted, there was a little less singing maybe than our normal services, but, there were, but then the pastor would get up and give a message. He would usually take God's word and give a devotional, maybe a little bit shorter than a morning message or an evening message. We would take a few requests, and we'd divide up, and probably out of all of that, I, I can remember maybe about 15 minutes of praying in a prayer meeting. That was supposed to last an hour, we maybe had 15 minutes of prayer. That was our experience. And so when I say lip service, even the pastors themselves gave lip service to it because they took the time really to do a Bible study. And, and the home Bible study movement of the mega church period uh, really was at least a little more honest that we're really just gathering for a home Bible study. We're not calling it a prayer meeting uh, and doing prayer less than everything else we do. And so the concept of lip service isn't something new. It is something that has persisted for at least my lifetime, uh, the last 60, 70 years, where um, of genuinely just gathering for prayer and saying, here's our requests and let's just pray, uh, was just not the experience that I had. And attending many churches across this country, uh, that's what was entailed. Uh, many times as a, when I was a uh, missionary and raising support and having to go to churches, many of the pastors would not schedule me for a Sunday service, but they would schedule me for a Wednesday night service. 
So now I'm coming into their prayer meeting with a presentation of my ministry. And so how much praying was going on? Well, it wasn't really a prayer meeting. It was just another meeting of the church. But we designated a prayer meeting, again, lip service and not the activity of prayer going on. And so while pastors were castigating their people, saying that why is our prayer meeting the least attended service of the church, the question maybe the people should have been asking their pastors is, why is prayer so insignificantly a part of our services that you plan? But you would have never said that to your pastor, huh? I would have never said that to my pastor growing up. But the observation could be made. If prayer is so critical, why is prayer so infrequent and so brief in all of our worship services? Why is that element so brief? Now, I don't know how many of you noticed I didn't do the pastoral prayer this morning. Did you guys notice? How many of you noticed? Okay. We had a young man many years ago, and when I had pastoral prayer, he would time it. And he would inform me afterwards how long I prayed. He was really impressed with my prayer time during church. And I was like, you do realize that I preach for like 45 minutes. And I only pray, but he would come, his, you prayed for five minutes and 40 seconds today. And I don't, and he was just flabbergasted. I was like, well, I preached for 45 minutes. So I only preached, I only prayed like a tenth of what I preached. Oh. So even in a church, and, and I remember when I was pastoring up at Charity that I had several people say, well, we missed the prayer time as the worship service uh, with other pastors that came in, and that that was a priority. Again, a priority, but if you think about it, from our perspective, spending five minutes in prayer out of an hour and a half service in our mind says that's a priority to pastor. That's all it took was five minutes of praying, continuous praying, communicating to people there was a higher priority than other pastors. What does that mean? How long are other pastors praying during their services? So when I say lip service, I'm not accusing just the church of lip service. I'm accusing the clergy of it too. And so we come into God's word and Peter says, listen, you're going to have to start taking your prayers more seriously. That's the first word I want to talk about. Taking our prayers seriously. Not only that praying is a serious endeavor by the church, it is going to be the fundamental necessary element to enduring as the end comes. And so we come to passages like in Thessalonians, it says pray without ceasing, uh, to be constant in prayer. We find these statements in God's word that make it very evident that prayer is to take, take a significant portion of our attention. And in that sense, uh, let's define what prayer is so we can take it more seriously. Okay? Uh, prayer is when you get on your knees and you say, dear Jesus, at the beginning, you say, in Jesus' name, amen, at the end, right? That's a prayer. That's what most of us communicate to our children, that's a prayer. It certainly is not standing out there, um, standing up from your work, looking around a beautiful day, and thanking the Lord for a beautiful day, and for the strength to do whatever it is you're doing. When we begin to understand that prayer is the opportunity to communicate to God, our Father, in heaven, uh, by the help of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, this uh, now makes the concept of constancy in prayer understandable because we have taken it out of the idea of our liturgy of worship in terms of corporate worship in the church and out of this uh, certain uh, added a certain lingo 
and bodily position. We, we, we take all of that away and strip it down. It is involving God in our conversation always. That I do not have a secular and a religious conversation. That every conversation is a religious conversation that I involve God in as one of the participants and listeners to my words. It is not just an attitudinal thing, it is a mental thing that understands that I am seeking to communicate what is not only God-honoring, but I am seeking to communicate to God even as I engage with other relationships. To bring those things in. And so we are told to pray seriously. Take our prayers serious. Be serious in your praying. To realize this is not just some exercise that we do on occasions to check off a chart. It is recognized I have a relationship with God and God is concerned about our prayers, that he responds to those, and that they need to be mixed with faith, and that as time grows near, suffering increases, the end is at hand, when Satan's forces seem to be at their most powerful, that it is prayer that is necessary for the church to stand. And without that praying, we will be weakened, we'll be necessarily caught off guard, we will be in jeopardy. We will not make wise decisions. We will not be able to be a light to the world. We will, we will be filled with the same fear, the same anxieties, the same uh, uh, anger, the, all of the same concerns of the world if we do not bring these things and engage God with them. When the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you, it is our prayers by the, is a mechanism by which we do that. That's how I cast my cares off. Lord, I trust you. I'm putting this before you. You see what's going on around us. Please guide me. Please strengthen me. Your spirit is with and we engage God. And when we see the injury done to not only ourselves but our brethren, we say, Lord, please remember that when the day of judgment comes, if these people do not come to repentance. But until that day, help me to witness to these people who are the enemies of your people today, but might be their brethren tomorrow. Prayer is the means by which we access God and, and set a right perspective on all the things that, that is encompassed in this statement that the end of all things is at hand. And if it was at hand there, it's at the very fingertips right now. It's on the very verge. And so we are called to be fervent, to be steadfast, to be serious in our praying. James tells us this, the fervent prayer of the righteous man that avails much. And yes, there are qualifications behind prayer. And so maybe your prayer life needs to begin by making things right with God in the areas of confession and repentance and, and seeking forgiveness. But that's not, if that's the end of your praying, then you're pathetic. Yes. I just feel sorry for you. Because there's so much more. God is not just... Uh, have a, a forgiveness wand waiting for you to confess, he is looking to do so much more in a relationship. If we'll simply, by faith, access him. And so we take this matter seriously. We recognize that whether we stand or fall in these end days is entirely dependent upon our prayers and our prayer life. Now what you'll notice, interestingly enough, by the way, is that in this whole list, um, you don't really see any direct, well you do see one direct reference to Bible study. 
there is a reference to if you're, if you're called by God, if you're gifted by God to preach, then you should preach. And so there is a direction that we minister, but that ministry isn't simply preaching. But when we put prayer in its priority, we re- recognize that why am I spending so much time here and so little time there? I should be taking my prayer more seriously. So what happens when you take something seriously that you used to not take seriously? Well, we need to go into some other areas of our life and just see what happens. Uh, when you take life, when you take your, <clears throat> I'm going to pick on, because I, well, this is big in our family now. Uh, it wasn't always big in our family, but it is now. When we take our diet seriously, okay, what do we do now that we didn't used to do before? Because we were, go through it, out of whether it was ignorance or just we just didn't take it, we didn't, didn't pour it, not, not like we ate out and had junk food all our lives. It was just the, the more seriously we took it, the more radical changes it created in our life. And it started making lifestyle changes to the point that now I'm raising our own food by and large. Why? Because I take it seriously because I see, man, the, if the food isn't, is, has no nutrient value because of its mass production and it has... The, all these hormones, and it has all these, um, what's the other bad thing? <laughs> you have all the pesticides, herbicides, and, and you have all this stuff that man is manipulating our food supply, and even our water supply, and I start saying, you know, I want to not have that. Well, now I have to change my whole life. The more seriously I take that, the more it penetrates much of my life. The more seriously you take an element, a position, the more it will penetrate your life. Take your praying seriously, and it will penetrate more of your life. It will change your lifestyle. It will change your language. And you've heard me say it from this pulpit before, and I'll say it again, that changing your speech is one of the most difficult things to change. But it can be done. To bring God into my conversations, into my language, to turn and communicate to him, even in the midst of while I'm communicating to others, and just saying, thank you, Lord. The Lord is good. The Lord is good is what I say to you. I'm saying to God, God, you are good. Thank you. And to take your prayers seriously means that I am going to truly cast my cares on him, and that if there is any rising up of Anxiety. if there's any rising up of fear, if there's any rising up of, of questions of, of what to do, where I go to the Lord on a regular basis, not just when things are beyond my capacity to handle myself, because the fact is, is that everything right now is beyond your capacity to handle yourself. When I look to the sky and I see this beautiful day being turned gray by spraying up there, and I look to God and I say, what can we do about it, Lord? I can't do anything about that. I can't stop that. You're just laughing from heaven at us because we're trying to control the weather. And God says, that's my domain. And so I go to the Psalms and I quote the Psalms to God. I say, God, you must be laughing in heaven, but we're really stuck down here on earth. There's nothing I can do about it. But pray. And give it to the Lord. And that's in every category. And it's going to become more significant as we draw near, because there's going to be less and less that it's going to be under your control. When the, when the people say, you either take this mark, you cannot buy or sell, they have the authority to do that. They will exercise that authority. And now, what are you going to do? Well, if the top of the list is that I'm going to pray, then you don't understand where the role of the Christian and his relationship with God is in this scenario. And not just pray and then say, well, whatever comes is God's will. And I've heard Christians do that. I prayed about this and now I'm doing this. And I said, well, that's not possible. Why not? Who are you to judge me? I said, well, because God will not lead you into sin. Just because you prayed about something and did what you wanted um, all along, it doesn't 
give God's stamp of approval on your prayer, nor does it mean I can no longer examine your decision-making, whether it's biblical or not. We excuse ourselves by saying, I prayed for five minutes about this, and, and then this is the outcome, so it must be God's approval. Genuine prayer, it takes it a serious matter that not only are the matters I'm praying about serious, but the fact that praying itself is a serious part of my life. And so I put that forward before the Lord, and I lay it out there. And I ask him to demonstrate his power, demonstrate his grace, his mercy, his goodness to us, demonstrate his wisdom in our lives. And that when he does that, we give him the glory. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. I want to cross-reference a little bit into, I could do a lot of cross-reference. I really already have um, passages you're familiar with uh, in other ones. But uh, chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. It says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul here is going to ask the people to pray for him. But I want you to notice that that is their, not their main, the main connection here is not pray for me. That is not the main text, is it? The main text is that you continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. I don't know how more emphatic he can be about the necessity to be steadfast in your praying. That we take it so seriously that we're not going to just give lip service to it anymore. That it's going to be a more significant part of who I am, what we do as a people of God, and that this is something that characterizes us, that we are people of prayer. That if there's four characteristics of the church in the end times, prayer should be the first one. They are a people who pray. Then he says, verse 3, meanwhile. <laughs> okay? So you continue earnestly, vigilant, I mean, just steadfast. Stay in this praying mode. And then, while you're praying, just, can you pray for me in there? Just slip me in there every now and then. I don't want to be the focal point of your praying, but if you're a praying people, meanwhile, pray for me. The worst thing to do is to go give prayer requests to unprayerful people because they'll forget it. Will you pray for me? Yeah. But if they don't take praying seriously, are they going to pray for you? Maybe once. So who do I go to if I want them to pray for me? I want, I want to go to people, like Paul does here, who are continuing earnestly in prayer and are vigilant in it with thanksgiving. We're going to get to the thanksgiving here in a little bit. Um, with thanksgiving, um, that's the people I'm going to talk to. I says, if you're praying vigilantly, if you're praying earnestly, if you're steadfast in prayer, I would like you to pray for me. If those don't describe your prayer life, don't bother. Because you're probably not taking the prayer seriously and so um, it'll be erratic at best. Uh, your, your walk with God isn't substantial. Your presence in the throne room of God is, is by and large insignificant. I know that's offensive to say that to people, so that's why I say it to everybody. Do we take it seriously enough to be steadfast in it? Be serious and steadfast in your prayers. Paul says, I want fervent, I want vigilant prayer warriors. Ones that will be faithful in it as a substantial part of their Christian experience, of their daily life. That they do it by faith, knowing that they have this relationship with God and that it is the outworking of that faith in God that I will put my cares there, I will put the 
needs of, the, of others there before him. And Paul says, you know, as you're faithful and vigilant, slip me in there, pray for us also. And he doesn't pray that uh, I'll have no pain. He doesn't pray that I'll have uh, no discomforts. That I'll, No, he says, pray that the word of God gets out through us. Pray for ministry, which is on the four list, by the way. Are we taking prayer seriously enough to be steadfast in it? Steadfast. If we are not steadfast in our praying, we will not stand fast in our faith. For prayer is the expression of faith. Think about this. Your faith begins. Your faith walk with God begins. And while I'm not a big advocate of the sinner's prayer, we recognize that at some point I am making a declaration before God of my guilt and an unworthiness to be to deliver myself that I'm incapable of that and that I need his help his forgiveness and we go to God with that that we confess and we make that statement to God and then before men and thus us with the heart uh, we engage but with a mouth confession is made in Corinthians, I'm sorry, in Romans 10. So we have both of these in, involved, and we know that. And so um, we begin our relationship with God really in a prayer state of speaking directly to God and, and, and asking for his forgiveness and turning, changing, and, and, and appropriating for ourselves the gift of salvation. We accept it from his hand. Not from some evangelist's hand or preacher's hand, or, or we accept it from God. It is God's gift to us to receive through this relationship. And so if it begins that way, we should recognize that if it's going to persist, if it's going to endure, if it's going to stand the test, not of time, but of persecution, that prayer must be a faithful element of our Christian experience. It needs to be a priority. That praying without ceasing is not somehow made impossible, but understood that it means that I have saturated my life with God to such a degree that I converse with him on a regular basis. This is what it means to be serious and watchful. Now, serious and steadfast. The, the, the steadfastness, the ferventness, the constancy is all there in the word serious and then watchful. I want to talk about Peter's description that our prayers be watchful. And that involves a concept of understanding the circumstances that we are under. Seriousness is, is taking prayer seriously, that we, that we are not flipping with it. We are, it's not just religious obligation, but it's something substantial that we take it serious. Watchful means I am aware of what's going on, and that prayer is that means by which I address that. In Ephesians, we have the, the armor passage that we talks about the armage, and uh, the, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, we go with that, feet shower, the preparation of the gospel of peace, and we have all of this, and, but oh, let's go there, Ephesians. I've got a couple that looks like, uh. <clears throat> but we have one that isn't even, <laughs> Ephesians 6. We begin verse 13 with the, with the armor passage. Again, the passage, let's go and read it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That's what Peter is concerned about, right? The end of all things is at hand. I want you to be able to stand. And having done all to stand. Therefore, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which... By, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we usually stop right there. And that's silly. 
because it's not the end of the sentence. We're not done with the armor of God. Verse 18 says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. Just like in Colossians, he says, while you're saturating your life with prayer, include me. But if your life isn't saturated with prayer, don't worry about it because your prayers are ineffectual. But look at this extensive statement. He has listed off the others largely without comment. But he comes to this, and we don't have a, a piece of armor to attach it to. So, oh, helmet, breastplate. We remember all the others because they're attached to the belt of truth. We got that feature. You know, I got all this. It's like, well, where's prayer? Shield, I got faith. Got sword. Got a little soldier. And we forget the one that doesn't have a piece of armor. Praying. Always. The only activity, as we take up all these other things, it says, take up the activity of prayer. That the real warrior activity, the fight, is praying. If we want to take this armor of God, what do I do with this armor of God? He doesn't go out there and sway. He doesn't, it says, take up all these things to do what? Put on this helmet. To do what? Put on this breastplate. To do what? Take up, put your, this on your feet. Put this belt around you. Put on this shield. Put on, now, to do what? To pray. Praying is the fighting of the soldier of God. You put on all these things so you can Pray. That's why you have to have the breastplate of righteousness because it's the fervent prayer of righteous men that avails much. You have to have the helmet of salvation so you can pray because without salvation you have no relation with God and your prayers won't reach farther than the ceiling. You have to have the shield of faith because prayer is a faith statement. And you should have the word of God in your hand and in your mind because that is what you are praying in agreement with the word of God. The activity that all this armor is for is to pray. That's the war. That's the fight. That's the engagement. You see, all the rest is take up all these things. Take the helmet. Take the sword. Take these things. Take the shield. Take, shod your feet. Gird your waist. Put on what to do. I've got it all now. What do I do? I stand here and look nice. You know, I'm a precious moments figurine. I have that figurine. I should have brought it. I put on all this stuff to look nice. Look, I'm a nice soldier of God. No, you do it to go to battle. What is the battle? The fight is praying. And praying some more, and praying some more, and inserting, Paul says, pray for me. We have a bunch of Christians so armed with the body armor of God, standing in attention, doing nothing, just standing in formation. And not fighting. Because we don't include this verse. Praying always. This is the activity of a well-equipped believer is to pray. Always. With all prayer and supplication. In the spirit. Being watchful. And there's that word watchful to this end. With all perseverance supplication for all the saints and for me. So the watchfulness is there, isn't it? Watchfulness says, I look around the circumstances around me and I realize I need to engage this junk going on around me. And the way I engage it all is not by pulling out my sword and slashing it all to pieces. It's not by taking my shield and bashing it off and defending myself. I engage it by praying. Being watchful. I look. Oh, boy, that's going bad over there. I'm praying. I'm going to pray, Lord. See that? You watching? I, I'm, I'm being watchful. I'm being observant of what is going around, and it is because my life is, is filled with prayer, I give these things, I cast them all before God. 
I bring them before his throne. I ask for the exercise of his power, of his grace, of his mercy, of his wisdom. I, I, I beg for him to put them into play in my life and the circumstances around me, not for my own comfort and success, but for the, his glory and his name, which is where this passage all ends. We need to begin every message with the end of all things is near. We need to end every message with that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That has to be the motive of your praying. And if it's just selfish that you want to have an easier life, then that's kind of pathetic too. I feel sorry for you too. You have my pity. Because the real prayer life there is for all the saints. Remember that? Back in the armor of God. You're going to pray with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. You're going to be diligent in this and we're going to extend that because ultimately we're concerned about the kingdom of God and not just the people that I like in the kingdom of God, the whole kingdom of God because I'm a member of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ is my king and it is him that I want glory and the better the kingdom of God is more the, the better they are in terms of being godly, the more glory goes to Jesus Christ. When Christians start falling, and boy, that, that should lead you to pray. When I see churches abandoning their services and having them online because they disregard the other warning in Revelation 13 about worshiping in front of an image instead of in, in person, and I see them, and I see them going, and I see them capitulating, capitulating. Oh, that should drive us to prayer. Because before the mark of the beast says everyone has to worship at the image or they die. They don't just get to not buy or sell. They get killed. So when I see pastors and, and churches being arrested and, and imprisoned for having in-person services, I go, wow, the end is near. The end of all things is at hand. What should I be doing? Praying. Not just for them, but for all the saints. For the ones that are capitulated, they might be convicted of that and stand. And for those that are standing and paying the price, and those like us that are standing and not paying really a price yet. Because we might... We've kind of made a decision, but we've kind of been left alone because we're kind of small and nobody takes us. We're not on anyone's radar so far that I can tell. Doesn't mean we can't become one. We need to be praying. That is the activity of worrying in the church. And giving that lip service is like some guy walking around um, in his full battle uniform with all of his, you know, sharpshooter medal or whatever medals he's got, who's never been engaged in battle. We are not called to be peacetime soldiers to just learn how to march. We are called to battle. And the battle activity is Praying. And you thought the battle activity was the gospel. That's not battle. The war is one lost in our prayers, in our praying as a body of Christ, as a family, and as individuals. And again, not I don't want you to limit praying to dear Jesus, prayer, amen, dear Lord, and amen. That it might be all our conversation. That we understand God is there. Does that mean this formalish praying should be diminished? No. Should not be abandoned. It should be there in addition to, and it should really be the overflow, the format, formal presentation of what we do every day. Are you a warrior of the cross? I don't know what that means to you, what it should mean to you, are you a praying person? Because that's the fighting of Ephesians 6. The activity is praying. 
That's why you have the armor on, is to pray. And so Peter says, you want to endure? You want to stand at the end of all things? Then you better be serious and watchful in your prayers. Look around, see these things, and, and you might say, well, you don't have to bring them to the attention of God. Yes, God has told us and commanded us to bring before him all of these concerns of ours. He knows what men are doing. He sits in the heavens and he laughs at them in Psalms, doesn't he? You foolish, foolish people, you're going to be condemned. But in terms of the needs of his people, he has made in his equations of life, in the relationship that he and, and we are responsive to each other. That as we trust in him and communicate our needs before him, he responds by provision and supply. We are responding through th in thanksgiving and giving him glory. And these are all to be a daily activity, not the rarity. And so we are called upon. You'll be watchful. Look around. I want to help you do that. I tried to help you do that. Look. Look through what's going on. And I know that people say your pastor's a conspiracy theorist. And I just kind of smile at people. I say, well, do you believe that Satan exists? Because I do. And if Satan exists, then you have to believe in the conspiracies of this world. That he wants all men everywhere to hate God and to reject everything God said is true. Be watchful. Recognize the evil one is very active. He's prowling about. He's a roaring lion. He's also an angel of light. And he wants to penetrate and destroy Every human institution, whether it be government, family, church, any institution he can. He wants to penetrate and destroy. Put your armor on. We're in the fight. Well, if you're praying, you're in the fight. If you're just armored up and standing, you're just cannon fodder is the term we use for you. That is, you're just there to be blown away by the enemy's artillery. The ones who are in the fight are the ones that are praying. Steadfastly. Watchfully. Recognize, I need to be in prayer. Look what's going on. It's beyond me. It always has been. But now, as the end draws even nearer, maybe we can take it more seriously. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your forgiveness. For not being engaged in the fight. Being well-dressed, but not active. For giving lip service to praying as so many others have. And Lord, we pray you might forgive us of that. That you might see us make it a priority in every facet of our life that we might come to you in prayer regarding our relationships, come to you in prayer as decisions, come to you in prayer as we uh, engage at work and in the circumstances there, not just in the difficult things and the troubling things, but in everything. We might give you thanks and rejoicing for your grace and power and wisdom and provision for our salvation that we might cast before you all the things, the daily cares that, that just seem to clutter our minds and our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray you might help us to um, be better praying. And we thank you for your spirit to, because we don't know how to pray as we should. But Lord, you have said that we should know how to pray. And so Lord, help us. As the disciples asked their Lord and our Lord 
to teach them to pray. Lord, we want to be, we are well equipped. You have well equipped your army. But we have just sat idly by and not engaged in the battle. Lord, help us to fight. Lift up our voices, lift up our hearts and minds before you and to pray. And Lord, we do pray this morning for our brethren. They're dealing with things that we really are just beginning to. We pray for our brethren in countries that are invoking horrible infringements upon their lives, uh, making it uh, an offense to gather in your name. Lord, that has been the case in lands, various lands, but we always thought we were insulated from it in our free countries, but Lord, we see that has not just eroded, it has just evaporated. So we pray for our brother in those lands that they might stand fast, that they might uh, not capitulate, they might pay that price, and we know that price could mean our very lives, their lives. So we pray for courage, fortitude, and we pray that you might have them be a bright testimony to this world of your truth and our commitment to it, to not only believing it, but to practicing it. Lord, we pray for our brother in that are just in environments of violence and hostility, of deprivation, need. Lord, we pray you might work in those situations. We think of our brethren in Haiti particularly and the gang warfare going on there and our prayers that you might uh, just continue to provide for the orphanage, for the people in the churches. You might protect and, and whether they are protected in the midst of it or from it, that you might uh, have your church stand fast and penetrate these gangs with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray for these that are being held of our Mennonite Amish brethren, and we pray for their testimony and their to um, impact the lives of these Haitians and that there might be uh, opportunities to, again, declare your truth there. And Lord, we continue to pray for pastors who uh, need to lead their flocks into your truth. And uh, we pray that you might uh, impress upon them their need in these end times to again call men to uh, fervently, watchfully engage this world and, and you in prayer and that we might stand. Lord, we have a knowledge of your truth and we pray that it might not make us feel invincible or puffed up, that we might uh, humbly recognize that even with the knowledge of the truth, we need your help to stand according to it and not to compromise. Lord, we certainly do pray for those that we missed today here in this place and those that have not been among your people some for many weeks and months some for years and Lord we pray again that you might bring the power your convicting spirit upon them and that they might uh, first get right with you that they might have an opportunity to respond to that conviction by repentance and sorrow and Lord that they might choose to return to your people and, and to, its, to their uh, growth in you. And we pray you might, again, uh, enable them. Some that want to be among your people and, and circumstances of life has made it difficult, we pray you might uh, free them up to do so. Lord, we see the world around us. We see the trends that are going on. We see them not localized, but internationally, so we know that your coming is near. And we have an opportunity to stand fast, but Lord, we cannot do it in our own strength or our own wisdom. And while we can make provisions for our 
physical health and, and needs. Lord, we uh, recognize that what really is required is our spiritual health. And we pray that we might be attentive to its care, that you might help us by your spirit, your people, and your word. And we thank you for so much that you've done for us. That we have enjoyed. Um, and we pray that we might put these resources to use for your kingdom as our time draws near to its very end. Lord, we pray for the ministries here, for our Sunday school teachers. We thank you for them. And Lord, we thank you for every opportunity we have to gather in your name, to be with your people, to be in your word, to be in prayer together. And Lord, we um, pray that you might find us ministering to one another, not less because of the days, but more so as we see your day approaching, that these practices might become more and more precious, even as they are growing more and more rare in so many churches today. Lord, we commit our day to you. We pray you might work in it mightily. We pray you might help the echoes of this time together in, the, in your word to penetrate our minds that we might uh, choose to be engaged in your war for your kingdom's sake by praying more fervently, by praying more watchfully, by praying more steadfastly and earnestly to take it seriously. Lord, help um, we as a congregation to understand your instructions, and then to engage in following them. Again, we rejoice in your word and it's access we have to it. We pray again for our families, our children, for we know that they are inundated by this world so much more than God's word, and we pray that you might help us to counterbalance that with the intensity of God's word that it might penetrate their hearts that they might come know you as Savior and Lord commit their ways to you and follow you with all their heart, mind, soul and strength we pray this in Christ Jesus name Amen